You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Praise the Lord for that song. I like that message, and young people keep on. Amen? And I appreciate the, the, the thought behind that. Well, I'm going to preach to you tonight about something in, in many ways related to uh, the campers and their testimonies tonight. And uh, I'd like to turn to Numbers chapter 13, if you would. Numbers 13. And as you're turning, go ahead and stand in uh, honor and respect of the reading of our scripture this evening. Numbers 13, verse 17. Numbers 13, 17 is where we'll begin. And you know the story, you know the passage, I'm sure. Um, this is when the Lord comes to Moses and says, Send men into the land of Canaan, and I want them, want them to go see it. I want you to pick a man from every tribe and go look at the land, spy out the land, and then come back and give a report. And uh, we pick that up in verse 17. It says, And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said unto them, Get you up this way southward, and go up into the mountain. And see the land, what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. I'm getting a ring up here, Brother Andrew. Can you turn me down just a little bit? And what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad. And what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds. And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not. And be ye of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rehob, and as, the men, as men come to Hamath. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Ahiman and Shishai and Talmai, the children of Anak, were. Remember that word, Anak. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, and they came unto the brook of Eshcol and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bare it between uh, two men upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. It's a lot of grapes. The place was called the brook Eshcol because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence, and they returned from searching of the land after forty days." And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto the, all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. And This is a big word in our text. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of, of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And you can imagine all the people are getting worked up about all the enemies. And so, verse 30, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it. For we are well able to overcome it. 
But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. What starts off as such a promising, potentially wonderful story ends extremely discouraging. And you find in the next chapter, the first verse, all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and the people wept that night. So what should have been a moment of excitement, a moment of encouragement, a moment of sure victory, and now even in verse 2, all the children of Israel murmuring against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation is saying, we should have just died in Egypt. There's no way we can go and take the land. I mean, I, I, this is one of the saddest stories in the Bible. And we're going to see tonight, I think, a principle that will help us um, both personally and with other people. Let's pray. Thank you, for, Father, for the truth here tonight. I pray that you'd help me to convey it. I thank you for uh, allowing me to have a part in the lives of these young people this week. And I pray that you would help us as a congregation to respond with more faith than the children of Israel did here, right here. God, help us to do what it takes and be willing to go whatever lengths we need to to help encourage uh, these young people to take the steps that would take them closer to their abundant life. God, I thank you for the passage. Please bless the reading of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So these spies, they go to the land of Canaan and they spy out the land. And I'm not going to rehash the story. You know it and you've heard it before. They come back and and they're excited about the potential in the land, except for that word nevertheless. See, the children of Anak were giants. And they say at the end of the chapter, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And, And ten of the spies, we're told, brought back an evil report. The two spies that came back with a positive report were who? Joshua and Caleb come back and they say, no, we can take the land. Let's go up at once. And, uh, and the people don't want to hear that. They're not listening to the two spies. They're listening to the ten spies. And, and the children of Israel ignore the good report. They focus on the giants, which shouldn't be surprising based on their pessimistic outlook in the wilderness. They start weeping, they start wailing, they're, they're murmuring against Moses and Aaron, and they say, we'd have been better off if you'd have left us in Egypt or if we just die in the wilderness. They even go so far to say, let's find a captain that will take us back to slavery in Egypt. They say that in verses 3 and 4, look, it says, and wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this, under this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Can you imagine that? For hundreds of years, they're, they're, they're crying out to God to take them out of slavery. And after just weeks, potentially, or maybe a month or two, they're in the wilderness and they're already itching to go back into slavery. And it's all because of this bad report that they get from the ten spies. 
Now Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, they try to turn these, the, the backsliding ship around, but, but once you've got a, a couple of million people that are upset with you, it's probably hard to change their minds. They try to convince them, though, to come back to their senses. And, and there's a great speech here in chapter 14, verse 7. Look at it. It says, um, so, And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Now, I, I say that that's one of the better halftime locker room speeches I've ever heard. He's saying, yeah, we're, we're down. Yeah, we look like it, it's, there's no way we're going to overcome this. I don't see a way out. But, but listen, we have a great God on our side. And these people are like bread. There's no way that, that they're going to defeat us if God delights in us. And you would think this speech would earn him some kind of a locker room speech award. But the children of Israel aren't most crowds. In verse 10, it says, But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. They wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb for having courage. They wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb for having faith. And here's quite a picture. The people are afraid of giants while they're watching the glory of God descend into the temple. It says again at the end of verse 10, And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. So I, I just want you to imagine what's happening. They, they see the glory of God descend. They're watching with their eyes. They're watching God's glory come down and descend into the tabernacle. But they're afraid of giants. They're afraid of men. And these are the same people who just a couple of months are a couple of months removed from watching God deliver them from Egypt by sending plagues and parting the Red Sea while they rock across dry ground. These are the same people that, that can look to the sky and they can see a cloud by day and they can see a pillar of fire by night. These are the same people that are looking up in the sky and there's a cloud leading them through the wilderness. At night, there's a pillar of fire and they see God's power in that fire. And yet when it comes to giants... They're too afraid to go and take the land. They've been eating manna and quail that God miraculous, miraculously is providing to sustain them every day. God is taking care of their needs. God is on their side and they're still afraid of giants. They fail to trust God even though his presence is visibly before them all, at all times. And God has enough there. And then look at verse 11. It says, and the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. God says, how long am I going to have to put up with this? I mean, I've given this nation signs, yet they still don't believe. And you see, no matter what God has done in the past, Israel's lack of belief prevented them from trusting God to take care of their present problems. How quickly we forget sometimes, huh? I mean, God has done something for us. I mean, I think even that, uh, about salvation, how God saved my soul from my sin. 
And God has done amazing things in my life. And yet something small comes up in my life. And, I, and it's, it's like I, can't, I forget everything good that's ever happened. And woe is me. And it's the end of the world. And here I am forgetting that God has done all of these things for me. Here are the children of Israel. They see a pillar of fire. They can see a cloud. They see the glory of God descending into the tabernacle. And yet they look and say, well, that guy's six foot six, though. I mean, that, just think about what's happening here. Well, we know that Moses intervenes on Israel's behalf and, he sh- and God shows mercy, but there are still consequences. And because of their lack of belief, their lack of faith, God says, I'll show mercy, but I'm going to remind the children of Israel that it's not about them, it's about me. And he, he smites them and, and, and he takes care of them. There's consequences. Now, Caleb, though, and Joshua, Caleb specifically is mentioned as having a different story. He has a different spirit than the rest. And for, for that, I'm very thankful. You know, he believes in God's power. He's followed God fully, and, and so he will enter the land, and his children shall possess it, but everybody else over the age of 20 is going to die in the wilderness. You know, what starts out at so, so, such a promising story ends up, in my opinion, one of the saddest stories in the Bible. Just to recap the consequences God says, everyone 20 years old and up that murmured against God would never inherit the land. The only ones that would go in were Joshua and Caleb. The little ones, the ones um, that they were saying were going to be prey for the enemies, God says, I'll let them go in. And God then says, because of your unbelief, you and your children will wander in the desert for 40 years until the last one of you dies. 40 years. One year for every day that the spies went and searched out the land as a reminder of why you have to wander. And those ten spies that brought the evil report, they died by a plague. Say, you're such an encouraging pastor. (laughs) You know, what does this all mean? Well, the promised land is a picture of the abundant Christian life. It's not necessarily a picture of heaven, because I I don't know about you, but if I get to heaven, I still have to conquer giants. When I get there, I'm going to be looking for somewhere else to go. But that's why it'd be more accurate to say Canaan is a picture of the abundant Christian life. You could say it pictures spiritual maturity. You could say it's a picture of Christ-likeness. And God has given us a picture in Jesus Christ of what he wants our lives to be. And it is God's will that every child of God lives that abundant Christian life. And not only has he given us this glimpse, but he's also enabled us to reach it through his son's example. Through the word of God, through the power of the spirit. We have every resource available to us to successfully live in the land of promise. But it, there's a problem. It's not easy. You see, just like Israel, we must cast out giants before we can inherit the land. We don't get saved and then just automatically become super Christian. We're just like Christ. No, although salvation is a point in time, sanctification of Christ's likeness is a process and it's a lifelong process. Salvation get, begins this journey in the, which the word of God sanctifies us and molds us into the image of his son. It's a process, not a light switch. I think that's why a lot of Christians don't make it into the land because they think, well, I should just be able to turn this on and here I am. But it's a long process. We all have giants to defeat. We all have sins that beset us. We, we all have tendencies and idiosyncrasies that trip us up. We have fears and we have doubts that we must overcome before we enter the land. And unfortunately, we can be like Israel in another way as well. See, their sin of unbelief prevented them from seeing God for who he really was. 
They'd seen the miracles, they'd witnessed the glory, yet they saw giants as being too big for God. I mean, these were the same people that saw the Red Sea part. They walked across on dry land, and yet they don't think that God is able to take care of some giants. It sounds ludicrous to us. It's, it's unbelievable that they could be that way, but that just shows you how strong the spirit of unbelief can be in us. It shows you how strongly we walk by sight instead of walking by faith. And so if we refuse to believe God in the face of our giants, we might never see the land either. God wants you to. God wants you to be in the promised land and, and God has made this life available, but he doesn't make you inherit it. He gives us a choice. He says, this is the life I want for you. I want you to look at it. I want you to catch a glimpse. It's a great life. It's the best life. But I will not force it on you. I'll give you all the power you need to prosper. I'll give you every resource available. But but you have to have a spirit like Caleb to get there. You, You have to believe in my ability to defeat giants. And you have to follow me fully. I think the application to our personal lives is obvious. Have you been to the promised land? Are you on your way to the promised land? Jesus Christ came not just to give life, but to give life more abundantly. Does that describe your life as a Christian? Do you have abundant life or do you operate out of scarcity? Do you barely get by or are you operating because your cup is overflowing more abundantly? It should be the norm for God's people to live in the land he's provided for us. But I'm afraid, unfortunately, that most people find it easier to live in Egypt. That's a picture of the world. Say, some Christians end up, yeah, sure, I'm enslaved, but at least there aren't giants in Egypt. I don't have to step out on faith. I don't have to believe God. I I don't have to be afraid. I, I, I don't have to face all my greatest fears. I don't have to follow God fully if I'm just in Egypt. And maybe there are some that want the promised land, but the giants are preventing you from getting there. There's a sin that you can't defeat. There's a habit that you can't break. There are fears that you haven't overcome yet. Well, Joshua and Caleb told the people it's not up to them to gain victory. They said, don't fear the giants. Have you seen our God? I mean, have you seen what he can do? The Lord is with us. You know, we can't win those battles anyway. But God said, don't fear, believe in my power and follow me fully. And you know, I could stop there tonight and you might want me to. And that might be the primary lesson. No matter the giants, the abundant Christian life is within reach if you have God's help. And I'm very thankful for that. But tonight, I want to give you a twist. I want to make a very specific application because I believe this passage has an important truth that often gets missed. You see, very often we put ourselves in the position um, of the children of Israel in terms of the, the abundant Christian life. And we say, well, we don't get to go there. You know, if we don't have faith, we don't get to enter the promised land. If we don't have faith, then I don't get to experience that abundant Christian life. And so I need to have more faith so that I can get into the promised land, so that I can be, have the life that God wants me to have. But I want you to think about this. See, the unbelief on the part of the children of Israel didn't just affect them. The unbelief on the, the part of the adults... The unbelief on the part of those 20 years old and up, it didn't just affect them. See, there were a multitude of young people who had to wait 40 years before they could enter the promised land. 
And yesterday morning, much earlier than I was hoping for, but yesterday morning, about 30 scouts came back from spying out the land. Now, don't, don't make, I'm not making you think like Richmond Lake is the promised land, okay? But they did go spy out the land. Meaning, I think that those 30, almost 30 scouts went and they got a glimpse of what the promised land could be like. They went and they got a glimpse of what an abundant Christian life could, could be. Most of them are between the ages 9 and 18. And for one week, they were away from most distractions and worldly influences. And honestly, based on my own observations, most of them saw the land for what it could be. Some saw it the first night. Some saw it the second or the third night. Some waited until Friday night after God had worked on their hearts all week. But I I believe that all but maybe one of our young people responded at some point during the week. And just about every single young person we took at some point in the week saw a glimpse. They caught a glimpse of what a better life could be. What a better way could be, as Brother Young preached. And, And I think they saw it For many reasons, I think they saw it because the distractions were fewer. I believe they saw it because the environment is so saturated with truth. They get three messages a day, plus um, a devotion at night, plus whatever spiritual monologue lessons Miss Aaron and and Brother Jet want to give them at some point along the way. You know, I've heard people indicate they think camp is some mushy, uh, emotional sob fest in which all kids just lose sight of reality for a few days and they make all these decisions but they're just a product of that environment. I've heard people talk like that. I've heard them say, well, it's not reality. You know, know, they go and it's not really real life because you have all of these, you know, everything's, uh, all the distractions are gone. We made them leave their cell phones at home. Amen. We made them go and, and just focus on the word and, and leave everything at, at home and, and just give their mind to the word of God and, and get rid of all the distractions. And, they, and a lot of people will come back and say, well, it's because it wasn't reality. But don't, that's really not the way it is. You see, I believe the opposite is true. I believe that many of our young people actually get a better picture of what reality should be when they go to camp. I think at that week at camp, they're seeing things more clearly than they ever see them. And I'm not saying it's because, well, you know, they're away from their parents. No, that's not it at all. I mean, when you're that saturated with the Word of God and you're that distraction-free, there's something about God giving you a glimpse of reality during that week that you don't get most weeks. I think reality is clearer that week. Their minds are less clouded with diversions. Some of them, for the first time this week, may have caught a glimpse of the kind of life that God has designed them to live. The best life. The Canaan life. As Brother Young put it all week, the better way. Many of them have come back like Joshua and Caleb. And they've gotten a glimpse of how great it is to live for God. And how to follow Him fully. And, and how, to, uh, how to read their Bibles more effectively and to make a decision about prayer and make a decision about being a witness and make a decision about obeying their parents and make a decision to give their lives to God and surrender their lives to God. And if he wants me to be a preacher, I will. Many of them have come back and they saw, like Joshua and Caleb, what the life could be. They've come back knowing there are giants. 
But I believe right now our young people, more than any other time of year, they have faith that the Lord can help them handle the giants. If they just walk by faith and they trust him. You know, they have a different spirit today. They're not worried about the obstacles. They have faith that God is bigger than anything they'll face. And when you catch a foretaste of the life in the land God has in store for you, fighting the giants seems like not such a big deal anymore. Because the life that you could live is worth it. It's better. My question is then, now that they've seen the land, and they come back and give us a report, how are we going to respond? Now that they've seen the land, and they see this is the life that God, I think, wants me to live, are we going to be like the children of Israel? Are we going to say, oh, no. Those giants are too big. Or I don't think you can overcome that one. Or are we going to say, you know, it is a great life. Son, daughter, we have nothing to fear because God's on our side. Are we going to say, well, if you made a decision for the Lord, uh, I will help you in whatever way you need. Are we going to say, I want nothing more than for you to get there. Let's follow God together. Are we going to say, if that, I mean, are we going to say this is wonderful and I believe that, that God has called you to something big and, and, and I will arrange our schedule and I'll help our home to be the kind of environment that you can meet these decisions? You know, if that's our response, it's wonderful. But I do believe that sometimes the skepticism of God's people is, is kind of alarming. Wow, yeah, it, it's a great land, but hey, those giants are huge. 14-year-old son. Have you, have you seen the giant? I mean, you know how big the giants are, right? I mean, we're, we're like grasshoppers, son. Or some say, well, I mean, I've heard of all before. They'll do exactly what they did last year. And that, that two-week giant's going to show up and, and in 14 days, 14 days, everything will be back to normal. Or yes, son, I, I know you've made a decision to get rid of all your worldly music, but let's, let's compromise. I mean, not all that music is bad. You know, I listen to some of that too. Besides, those CDs are worth a lot of money. Or the same kid made the same decision to get better last year. You know, we're talking amongst ourselves. Yeah, he said that last year. He said, yeah, he's, you know, he said, I'm going to get better friends. It didn't happen. Same old, same old. Yeah, sure, daughter. I I know you've made a decision to witness more this year, but you need your evenings to focus on your schoolwork and so you can get a scholarship and go to a good school and get a good job. Didn't you make the decision to read through your Bible last year at camp? And you're, so you're going to try that again? Uh, give him a few weeks. All this holiness will wear off. I really want to do these with an accent. Give him a few weeks. I don't know why, but all this holiness will wear off before too long. I know you made a decision not to watch those movies and TV shows that use the Lord's name in vain. But if you, I mean, if you say that, though, there won't be anything left for us to watch. Are you saying we can't sit down as a family and... I'm meddling now, aren't I? No, we might never come out and say those things. But all it takes is a lack of faith on our part to affect this generation. And first of all, our view of God will shape that of the next generation. 
And imagine children listening to their parents wail about the giants, but think, but just a couple months ago, he parted the Red Sea. And listen to their parents say, we can't defeat the giants. And they're looking in the sky and they're saying, but that cloud. And when night rolls around, they're saying, yeah, they're giants, but that pillar of fire, I mean, if God just goes and burns the giants to a crisp with that, we probably will be fine. I mean, they're, they're thinking, it's obvious to me, mom and dad, those giants are either really strong or pretty big or our God isn't as strong as I thought he was. See, God laid the blame for the 40 years of wandering at the feet of those 20 years and older. And that lack of belief in God was not coming from the children. It normally doesn't come from the children. Moms and dads, adults. It's not usually children that lack faith. In Matthew 18, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as what? Little children. Ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And and look at verse uh, 31. But your little ones, this is God talking to the children of Israel, which ye said shall be, should be a prey, them will I bring in. And they shall know the land which ye have despised. And so we might look at that and say, well, at least the children got to go in. Yeah, but look at verse 33. And your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years. And bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. So as positive as it sounds that their children will get to go in, because of their lack of faith, those young people, those under 20, had to deal with the consequences of their parents' lack of faith for 40 years. You know how many of their parents they had to bury? Hundreds of thousands. You know how many of, he says, your carcasses will die in the wilderness. You know how many times those children under the age of 20, had to stop and bury a a, a grandparent. Bury an aunt or an uncle. Over and over and over for 40 plus years, it was the parents' lack of faith that kept the children out of Canaan. And I wonder how many of our children will have to wait until our influence is gone before they can inhabit Canaan. You know, there were children the same age. I, I, was, I brought this mic over here for Manny because I thought, well, I don't know if he's, he's going to be seen over the pulpit tonight. But he's taller than I thought. I wonder how many nine-year-olds had to wait till they were 49 to go into the land of Canaan. Manny, are you nine? Nine years old? Yeah. My four daughters went to camp this year. Three of them gave testimonies tonight. You know, as a dad, I really hope they caught a glimpse. I hope they saw the land. But I wonder if it's going to be my doubt that causes them to miss out on the the years of the abundant life they could enjoy. I imagine some children died in the desert too. I imagine there were some children that got sick or got bit by a snake or fell and had an accident, dying in a wilderness when they could have been in the promised land. And they never got to see Canaan, even though God had prepared them for it. And he prepared it for them. 
and their parents' lack of faith prevented them. You know, this is evidence of parents actually holding back their children. And so I'm preaching tonight to parents, which I am one. And I'm not telling, kids, I'm not saying that you should blame your parents if you get held back. I'm just saying, parents, we need to make sure that we're not the ones to blame. That we're not the ones holding our children back. And I I guess we have to ask ourselves, when the Lord moves in our young people, am I the one casting doubt on his ability to bring them into Canaan? As Joshua said tonight, I can read my Bible uh, and and know him. (laughs) I mean, as as Caitlin said, I I can have a good walk with God as a teenager, They don't have to wait on me. And honestly, if they grow past me this year, I'd be happy for it. I don't want my walk with God to limit my children's walk with God. Is my faith holding them back? Is my doubt holding them back? The other question is, why the skepticism? You know, we have to stop sometimes and consider, why am I skeptical about this? Or why why do adults look at children and think, oh, that's, you know, I don't know about that. Well, I think one answer is to, to that is the possibility that we grown-ups, we need to catch a glimpse of the abundant Christian life. Just because I'm 41 years old, it doesn't mean I, and a pastor doesn't mean I've ever had a glimpse. And we all ought to ask ourselves, maybe I'm skeptical when a young person comes back from camp excited and they spied out the land and they say, this is the, the life I want and the reason I'm skeptical might just be because I've never really experienced it for myself. I, we might need to catch a glimpse, folks. Maybe we're skeptical because we haven't experienced it. Maybe we're not as passionate for them to read their Bible and pray and grow in the Lord uh, because we're not even really sure what they're missing if they don't. And you know, this doesn't just fall on parents, though. It, not everyone that doubted was a parent. I'm sure there were singles and couples before they had children and older folks with grown children or children or never had children, all of whom who made decisions that affected the younger generation. And let me just tell you this today, you may not be a parent, but your influence can have either a not negative or positive effect on these young people that made decisions at camp. I look back on my life and I was raised in a pastor's home and, and my dad had an influence on me and my mom had an influence on my faith and I, I'm thankful for that. But when I think about the people in my life that have influenced me the most, my parents are at the top of the list, but just underneath them is a former youth pastor who was not my dad, but he loved me enough to tell me the truth when I needed to hear it. And, and, and just under or right next to him is another guy that was a layman at our church. He was an, an engineer. He worked in construction. And, and he wasn't even paid by the church. But he took time to take me golfing. And while we were on the golf course, he would tell me about life. And he would teach me lessons about how to be a good Christian and, 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 and how to be a good example at school. And, and he went to public school and I went to public school. And he, he would tell me about some of the things that he faced as a public school kid. And you say, here's how I dealt with it. Here's some of the problems that I have, and here's how you can do this too. I just want to encourage you, Jason. And I think about friends in my life that aren't my parents, they're not related to me, but I look at their influence on my life, and I think, well, those people had an influence on me. They're not my parents. They're, they're, they're not related to me, but they took time to love me, and they took time to be an example for me, 
And a large part of who I am is made up, obviously, of my parents. But besides that, it's, it's mostly people that aren't related to me. And I say that tonight because you may not have children that went to camp this week, but you do have the opportunity to, to live the abundant Christian life yourself. And you can take one of these youngsters under your wings. You may be looking at him and say, well, my heart really went out when, uh, when Josh got up and was talking about reading his Bible and knowing God. And, you know, I'm not his dad, but, but I can be an influence on Josh. Maybe you heard Matthew say, which is really exciting for me, I got to pray with him. Maybe you heard Matthew say, I surrender my life to God, whatever he wants me to do. Maybe you think, uh, you know, I'm not his dad, but I can have an influence on Matthew. I could pick him up one time in the next month or two while he's out of school and, and take him to lunch and just be an encouragement to him. You know, God puts us in a church body for a reason. And I'm thankful for the times over the years that people that aren't my children's parents have taken time to influence them and reach out to them. You know, there are very few things that mean more to me than, than when people love my kids. And they reach out to my kids and they take time for them. Any of us can do that with any of these young people that you heard talk tonight. You can have an influence in their lives now, rather than be skeptical, why don't we find out how God moved in their hearts and help them with their decisions? Why don't we come alongside and saying, instead of saying, yeah, it'll just be same, same old, same old, and no, we take the words of that song and say, keep on. Josiah, keep on. You, know, you can do this. We say, Caitlin, keep on, and Ellen, Rhiannon, Angie, keep on. Manny, keep on. And wake up earlier, but keep on. <laughs> and Joshua, don't shoot me with an airsoft gun, but keep on. And Ben, keep on. CJ, stop doing aerobics in your bunk above me. <laughs> All night long. <laughs> don't keep on with that. But CJ made some decisions to give his life to God. CJ, keep on. Joseph, you got saved this week. Praise the Lord. And now it's time to grow. Keep on. Danny, you just graduated high school and now, you know, real life begins. Well, you can do this. Keep on. I'm looking around the room, just all these young people, and I think, I mean, who, who's going to encourage them? I don't know anybody outside these church walls that has an interest in their spiritual lives like Eastside Baptist Church does? Who's going to tell them to keep on? Who's going to influence them for, for right except the, uh, the people in this room and especially the people that have lived the abundant Christian life themselves? Because I probably won't be very passionate about telling them to keep on if I've never been there myself. Church member, decide to influence somebody younger than you. Somebody that's made a decision. You'd make their day to show some interest and keep, help them keep their decisions. You know, and I do feel obligated tonight to mention to these children and young people, you're ultimately responsible for yourself. You are ultimately responsible. So when it comes down to the end of your life and you start making excuses about people that did this to you or they didn't help you this way, God's not going to hear any of that. You stand before God by yourself. You are responsible. No parents are completely to blame or receive all the credit for the way their children turn out. 
We are people of, uh, we have our own volition and free will. We make choices. But I wonder, though, how many young people that have come through the doors of Eastside Baptist Church and walked out the doors of Eastside Baptist Church over the years might still be here if just one person had decided along the way, instead of being skeptical, I'm going to have faith that God can help this young kid who talks too much and doesn't take a shower all week and shoots me with airsoft guns. If someone had just said, I'm going to take this, young, this kid under my wing and I'm going to help him get there. I'm going to encourage him to keep on. So tonight, Eastside Baptist Church, I want to ask you to come pray for a camper. I'm not saying you have to go get one and bring him down. If you want to, that's fine. Parents, if you want to. But I'm going to ask you to everybody to pray for a camper. Just pick one out uh, among the mugshots tonight. And say, that one looks like he might end up in prison. I'll pray for him. Pick one out and pray for a camper tonight. Why don't you ask the Lord to help them live out their decisions? Why don't you ask the Lord to give you ideas about how you can encourage these young people? Church members, pray about how you can help them along. Parents, pray with your child. It does a lot for our children to hear their moms and dads pray for them. And so importantly, we need to stop focusing on the giants. And we need to focus on God. And maybe it's time for some of us parents... Uh, who may be the ones enabling the giants in our homes to say, if it means something to my son to have victory and have an abundant Christian life, I'll do whatever it takes in our home environment to take care of this. I'll get rid of whatever music, whatever movies. I'll get rid of the television. I'll put the computer out on the curb. If If that's what it would take for my son to grow up with a pure mind before God, and my daughters to grow up loving God first. I will do whatever it takes because it could be that parents, we're enabling the giants. And maybe it's time for us to stop looking at them and say, you need to change, you need to change, you need to change. And say, no, as a parent, I'm passionate enough about the abundant Christian life that I'll do what it takes for my children to have an environment where the giants don't exist. So, Help them not focus on giants. Help them not to have to the fight every day. Be ready to do whatever it takes to help them get to that abundant Christian life. And above all, remember that you can only conquer Canaan if God is with you. Don't try this on your own, kids. You'll, the world will spit you out. But if you go with God's help, there's no giant too strong for a pillar of fire. And there's no giant too big for a cloud. There's no giant too big for a God that can part the Red Sea and help you walk across on dry land. So tonight, I don't know how the invitation would work. I'm just going to ask you, parents, encourage you to pray with your kids about their decisions. Eastside Baptist Church, let's let's gather around them and, and in our hearts pray for them to keep on. Because I happen to believe that we took a group of young people, of scouts, spying out the land, that if they'll give their lives to God and live in that abundant Christian life, who knows, but they could change our whole city. I mean, at the very least, they could change our youth group, affect our church. Some of these young people might end up overseas reaching people around the world. And it may just come down to parents that have faith 
that the abundant Christian life is worth helping them reach it. Let's all stand together. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.